Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-440. Yeah, 440. It's very a lot of fours in there of the Run Run Lip podcast. And yes, welcome, my friends. I know I'm a week late and it pains me. It pains me. Pains me terribly not to meet my commitments. It's a sign of a life lived out of control of chaos. I'm not a control freak, but I do like to engender habits and consistency. And habits are very strong things. Habits are the fibrous tissue of our day-to-day life. They're hard to tear. But once rent, they're hard to put back in place. So apologies for being a week late. My work got very time-sensitive and emotionally taxing for a couple weeks. And that combined... With the necessary house projects and everything else in my life pushed me past, irrevocably past the deadline. I have taken some corrective actions on this front, though, and I might talk about that a little bit more later. Maybe, maybe not. Today, we talk with Jason. And Jason had one of those death experiences. You know, not near death. No, for Jason, he died and he came back. And it's always interesting for me to talk to people who have had these life-altering events because it underscores the ability and power that we all have inside of us to change, to radically change, to begin to live life before it's too late. But for some reason, we don't. And why is that? What is the glue of normalcy that causes us to submit our dreams of adventure to the daily grind? Until one day we shuffle off the mortal coil, leaving dreams unfulfilled, scattered here and there, like unopened Christmas presents. In section one, I'll talk about how you can build your own ad hoc core workout routines. And in section two, we'll catch up with the old man and with Bill the dog in the apocalypse. So these days, (laughs) I listen to mostly history podcasts. I don't listen to any running podcasts, really. And uh, what I'll do is I'll start a history podcast and listen through, all the way through. Start at the beginning, listen through until I'm caught up. And it's usually a couple hundred episodes. And I like the continuity of it, of being able to listen through an arc of the historical narrative all at once. 
maybe while, you know, painting or gardening for a few hours at a time. And it's always a mixture of bittersweet and accomplishment when I do get caught up and there's no more episodes to listen to and I have to wait for that whoever that historian is to push out another one. And that gets me to thinking that there might be people, actual people, someone out there listening right now who has just listened through the athletic arc of a dozen years of my life. And that's an odd thought to me. So if it's you, if you get to this point and it's you, you got through 440 episodes and here we are, send me an email or reach out to me on social. I'd love to talk to you about it. So that is, as always, C-Y-K-T Russell, Chris, Yellow, King, Tom, Russell, two S's, two L's, at gmail.com, and all of the other social media spots, although I don't spend much time on social media anymore. I've given up entirely on Twitter. I dip into Facebook to see if anyone is looking for me, maybe once a day or so. And I do post pictures on Instagram. That doesn't seem to be too much of a sewer yet, but it's only a matter of time. Since we last talked, which was after my virtual Boston Marathon, I've been taking it pretty easy. The leg seems to have gotten better. No more swelling or lumps or lymph node swelling. And it kind of makes me feel like a fake. I skipped my target race and it turned out to be, yeah, basically nothing. But, you know, that's life. I've been running with Ollie three days a week for, you know, 20-ish miles, maybe mid-20s. Just easy stuff. Mostly trails. I'm easing into core work and yoga on the other days. And on Sundays, I meet with my buddies and we do a long, easy bike ride, usually around 30 miles. And we'll hit someplace to eat at the halfway point. And it's a really nice change. I got my old race bike, Fujisan, the classic steel frame road bike that I bought to commute with probably 20 plus years ago. and But it's a real bike, a bit heavy, but good Shimano components, clip-on aero bars, and enough working gears to get me where I'm going. And usually if I'm training, I might average, you know, 18 miles an hour. Uh, but on these pancake and bagel rides, <laughs> we tend to average 11, 12 miles per hour. So that should give you a sense of the effort level involved or lack thereof. And I'm going to stick with this routine until the end of the year. There's really no events, so there's no reason to get specific with any training. Just keep my engine turning over and try to stay healthy. So how about a garden update? Well, not much left at this point. I picked all the rest of the peppers today. We we haven't had a frost yet, so things are still alive. I've got some beans growing in there. I've got some raspberries that are still producing. And, of course, the kale, because the kale likes colder weather. But I've got a persistent worm problem. And since I was working from home all summer, I decided to see if I could win the worm war. I would go out every day and inspect the kale leaves for worms. And I'd pluck them off one at a time and squish them. And I found that after a week or so, I was actually winning. I was turning the tide. There was more kale. There were less worms. But it was not a victory I could ever walk away from. Miss a couple days and the worms would be back. Miss a week and you might as well give up. I learned. I learned that if I actually wanted worm-free kale, I would have to inspect every leaf on every plant, 
every day. What if I had a kale farm with hundreds of plants? What if I needed these kale leaves to feed the tribe? I would never be able to keep up. The obvious conclusion, to me anyhow, is that kale farming must have led to the necessity of slavery. There's no other way you could keep up. And with that, let's get on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. How to create a total body workout routine here in the apocalypse. And you got to work with what you have. So as we move into the fall and winter season, I usually back off my miles and look to gain more body strength. In a couple weeks, while technically I can still ride, biking in the freezing cold becomes more work than it's worth. Running is still great in the cold weather, but... I like to give my body a break on the miles, right, to heal up a little before the spring campaigns. And many times I'll come out of the fall race season nursing some sort of volume-related injury. It's a good season to step back a little, let my body heal. For me, it's just a nice cadence. It's not just physical. If I have been loading up the miles or the intensity for a fall race, I'll be mentally burnt out on training as I go into the fall. So take a break? Yes, but, eh, you know, not really. I'm not the kind of person who can sit on the couch and watch my waistline expand from inactivity. I still need to do something. And that something is typically more strength work, more core work, more strength training. Now, if I could get to a gym, I could use their weights or maybe even get into the pool for some laps. But this year, in the apocalypse, it's just not really a viable option for me. So where does that leave us? That leaves me with having to make up my own workout routines with limited space and equipment. So it turns out this is not as big a hurdle as you would think. Even when I am training heavily, I'm still doing core work on the off days. I have an existing routine that I can expand. And before the world came to an end, I was a heavy business travel guy, so I have many of these routines that can be done very simply on a hotel room floor with or without any equipment. But at home, I do have some equipment. I have a Swedish ball, which is one of those, you know, inflatable, big, bouncy things. I think mine is a larger one, maybe 52 or 75 centimeters. And this is a very versatile piece of equipment. It is light, it's portable, it can be used as a platform for many core exercises. Anything that requires a bench can be done on the Swedish ball. I also have one set of 15-pound dumbbells and a set of 10-pound dumbbells. In the apocalypse, there's a shortage of dumbbells, but I already had these. They aren't heavy enough to do any real weight lifting, but they're a good compromise a good compromise weight for me that I can do most of the exercises and then just flex up the reps up or down to make up for the the lighter weights. For instance, if I have a workout that calls for a bench press, I can use a Swedish ball instead of a bench and the 15-pound dumbbells. It's not enough weight, but I can do a lot of reps and I can do them fast to make up for it, and the ball works your core stability muscles at the same time as well. It's not perfect, but you get some benefit, right? You can work around it. 
And I picked up a set of rubber tube stretchy things. They aren't much use because the resistance is very low, but they can be used for some routines that require that light resistant band. A lot of these exercises require a resistance band. A lot of the hip strengthening exercises use rubber resistance bands, so you can use them for that. I have a set of those. And I also have a yoga mat, which is helpful because it makes things like planks a bit more comfortable and it keeps the majority of the dog hair off me. The mat also creates a sense of place. That's the big missing psychological piece to doing your own remote workouts. It's hard to get motivated to walk into your den or your living room for a workout on the floor. When you have the mat, you can roll that out and it gives a bit of psychological anchoring to the workouts. Here's my place to work out. Plus, and probably obviously, it's good for yoga too. The question then becomes, how do you create a workout routine that you can get some benefit out of. You don't want to just do random exercises. To gain strength and muscle, you need to have a method to your madness. As with everything else, it's stress and response. You work a muscle group, then let it recover. You don't want to stress the same muscle groups multiple days in a row, or you won't get the same benefit. So how do you figure out which exercises you should be doing? There are hundreds of exercises you can choose from. How do you organize them? How do you create a nice cadence? Well, the first thing you want to do is look at the major muscle groups. So for simplicity's sake, get a notebook or a couple of pieces of paper and write the following groups down. One, chest. Two, back. Three, arms. Four, legs. Five, shoulders. Six, abs. Seven, other. (laughs) That gives you six muscle groups to hit. So if you're working out three days a week, you can do two major muscle groups in each workout. For example, the following are very complementary. Day one, chest and back. Day two, arms and shoulders. Day three, legs and abs. And you could almost, you know, I'm doing them three days a week, so they have some spacing in there, but you could stack these up one day after another. When I used to lift weights, that's what I do. You just stack them up one day after another. So you're doing different muscle groups and you can recover. The next thing you do is find all the exercises that you can do that fit the equipment you have and put them into one of these six muscle groups or the extra category, the other category. So let's say you do push-ups. What muscle group would that be? Well, although a good push-up works several muscle groups in the core, the major group is chest. So push-up would go under chest. Uh, How about a squat? Yeah, that would be legs, right? And if you get stuck, just Google it. Just try something like top 10 chest exercises And you'll find everything you need with instructional videos. The videos, by the way, are very important, especially if you're new to weights or core work. Form is quite important, especially for back exercises. You don't want to hurt your back. Now, what do you have after you're done here? You've got six or seven muscle group categories, each with five to ten exercises or variants of exercises in them. So now what? Well, now... You just choose two or three from the appropriate category. It's mix and match, right? Today is day one. I'm doing chest and back. So, if 
for a chest, I might choose a dumbbell press on the Swedish ball, dumbbell fly, and push-ups. Add three back exercises from the back exercise list, and you got yourself a workout. Do three sets of that, meaning you'll do each of the three exercises three times. Do whatever number of repetitions that matches your fitness, or alternatively, you can do it by time, like 30 seconds or a minute. So what would that look like now after you pull it all together? This set might be, and this is just a random choice here, so you can configure your own. You might say you start with 20 reps of the bench press, 15 flies, 20 push-ups, 15 reps of a standing fly, 15 reps of a standing row, 15 reps of a single arm row, 60 second plank. And that's a set. Just made that up. Top of my head. Each exercise might take maybe two minutes for a total of 10 to 15 minutes per set. That means you can get this done in 45 minutes, three sets, go go through it three times. You take a minute to rest in between, get a sip of water, and repeat. So you just created your own personal workout. And the next time you do it, you get to that chest and back day, you can choose different exercises or different variants from your list for those muscle groups just to keep it interesting. And that's it. Easy peasy. So one last thing, if you're starting from scratch, I would recommend easing into it. I do. For the first week, just do one set and then two and then three. Start light so you can learn the motions. And then by the third or fourth week, you can really hit it hard and get a great workout. That's it. Go forth and get strong. And now for today's featured interview. So, uh, Jason, give us the 200 words or less on who you are and why we're talking. My name is Jason Pepin. I live in Reno, Nevada. I am a Widowmaker heart attack survivor. If you don't know what a Widowmaker heart attack is, it is a heart attack that is from the largest artery or the LED artery that goes down the front of the heart. It's the one that supplies the most blood. Mine was 100% clogged. Most people, on the numbers vary as, as low as 50%, as high as 90%, don't survive. And I had mine while I was on my bicycle riding in LA. Fortunately from, for me, I was rushed to the hospital um, from the time that the paramedics got to me to the time they cleared my artery was 19 minutes. Um, yeah. So kudos to Holy Cross Hospital. Um, yeah, you had a bunch of things go right to get you where you correct. get to and get you fixed there. It was an eye-opening experience. I would have never thought leaving my house that morning that that would happen, that I would be here mainly because one of my friends overslept. Because had we been in the national forest, I wouldn't have survived. And the one thing that I really haven't talked to people about is that there was also a tremendous amount of guilt. Because in meeting people and talking to people, some who had survived and then people who had family members who didn't survive the same exact heart attack, it was kind of heartbreaking. Because I was wondering why I survived, why this happened, why did everything go right for me and not right for some other people? Yeah. And that took some time to get over. I'll let you tell your story of the day because it is, you could actually write a pretty good humorous article out of that too, you know, if you <laughs> wanted to, right? Correct. It, it would make a good comedy. But I'll tell you my quick story. I had a guy drop dead in front of me from that same event. We were running a race, pretty tough 16 miler. And we uh, got to the end. The guy went down in the chute um, while we were standing around at the finish. Mm-hmm. Basically, we had just finished. And the guy was right behind me. Young guy, like 30 something too, right? And he went down and there was a doctor there and mm-hmm. they were on him fast. Like there was an actual heart surgeon in the race that, and the paramedics were there pretty fast, but he didn't make it. Right. Yeah. So with some of these events, it's like somebody throws a switch. Right. 
I was fortunate because I really didn't know what was going on. Like yep. for me, it was, for me, it was an asthma attack. That's what the problem was because it didn't register the pain. What it registered was the fact that I couldn't breathe. Right. Yeah. So when the paramedics got to me, it's still to this day, the best. And I think I said it in the article was this is the best line I've ever uttered in my life was when the paramedics turned and looked at me and said, we need to take you to the hospital. And I said, why? And they're like, because you're having a heart attack. And my reaction was, I'm sorry, I'm having a what? <laughs> And yeah. he's like, you're having a heart attack. And yeah. it just, it didn't register. And then um, through everything, the orderly and cutting my clothes and something that was so valuable to me. But in the cath lab, I remember very little, but in the cath lab, the nurse that was there, this African-American gentleman, was ungodly nice. And I remember begging him, begging for him to help me because it hurt so bad. Um, yeah. and it was the last thing I remember. And then the doctor standing over me and there's clapping his hands, loud clapping his hands and it didn't register. I opened my eyes and the first thing he said to me was welcome back. And we're talking, he's explaining everything that they did to me. And he's, you know, your artery's clear. You're going to be fine. We put a stent in there and blah, blah, blah. And so, well, if, if everything's fine, why does my chest still hurt? And the nurse kind of looks at me, he starts laughing. He goes, it's because you coded and you died on the table. He's like, yeah. we had to use a defibrillator to bring you back. Yeah. And I'm like, Huh. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So the story is you're going off your ride with your buddies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of your buddies overslept or didn't show up or something. So you picked a closer route, a shorter route, a city route. And the thing behind it is I just moved back to LA. So I'd only been in LA for six days. And these are friends of mine. We had ridden together for years and I was back and Hey, let's go for a bike ride. And we got to Leo's house and it took us probably 30 minutes to get him out of the house because he was asleep. Yeah. But I didn't know we were going to go to the forest. Um, they were going to surprise me by taking me there. Yeah. And we had ridden it together. We had ridden it before. But so when the route changed, I didn't know the route changed. It wasn't until after Rafa's like, hey, he goes, just so you know, this wasn't the route we were going to go. He goes, we were going to go a little T. And he just kind of looks at me and says, I don't know if I would have forgiven myself. Yeah, because there was no, you'd be in the woods. Yeah, yeah. there'd be no help. Yeah. And then you coasted on your bike while having a heart attack Correct. down the hill to the service station. Mm -hmm. And the attendant was smart enough to call 911 when he looked at you. Yeah. And the attendant went back, it wasn't long, I want to say a month later, to say thank you and to make sure that he understood how important his decision to call 911 was. It was just something I felt I had to do. If I knew who the guy was that was pumping gas who initially saw me, I would have reached out to him. But I didn't get a name or anything at the time. So, yeah, it's tough. So, you ended up uh, getting caught and getting brought back. But it just goes to show you, and this is a great lesson for people that you can be an athlete, quote unquote mm -hmm. athlete. We're all weekend warriors. And that doesn't mean you can not have heart disease. And right. I've seen more than one amateur athlete we've lost. We were talking about it. You can't run away from certain things, right? You can't out-exercise heart disease in certain scenarios, right? Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing I took away from it was, and granted, there were other things. Diet, I'm a chef. I like to eat. At the time, I don't anymore. At the time, I did smoke. Again, it's a product of, of being in the restaurant business. But I figured I could exercise my way to good health, regardless of what else I did. Right. And then when this happened, all that changed. Right. Um, it, it did take some time. I, I like I said, I, I battled with some demons after, but once it was kind of like, okay, hey, you know what? This is what's important. You have a second chance. You're able to do things that a lot of people who went through your situation can't do or yeah. are no longer around to do. So hey, let's make the most of it. Yeah, and another version of the story we often hear is the guy goes to his doctor's appointment, right? And he's 
380 pounds and loves his cheeseburgers. And mm-hmm. the doctor looks him in the eye and says, well, you're going to be dead in two years if you don't change the way you're living. And that starts this whole journey, right? It's a little less mm-hmm. precipitate. Or you have people who it was something external, like a car hit them or something external flipped that switch. But what always happens is there's some sort of epiphany. So it's interesting right. to me that you actually went in a little bit of a dark place first before you got to the epiphany. Because a lot of these folks, they just pop up and go, that's God sending me a message. And their life changes 180 degrees that day, right? Yeah. The places that I went emotionally or mentally or however you want to look at it was, I wouldn't have wished on anybody because honestly, I just didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with the emotions of it. I didn't know how to deal with the survivor part of it. I just, I didn't. And it took probably a good, so it's been what, eight years? So it probably took a good five years. And only about three years ago did I really start to turn that corner and get to where I accepted what happened and really focused on making the best of however much time I have left. But it was not, it wasn't easy. And I've met a few people that have been through a similar situation, whether it's open heart surgery or whatever it may be, who have done the same thing, who have hit this depression part of it and just, and they don't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. And ultimately you seek somebody out and you sit down and you talk and you realize that, okay, this is normal. It's okay to kind of move on from it. And was it sort of going through the process of grieving, like you lost something and why me and that whole process? It, it, It was to an extent. There was a lot of anger because I had done triathlons. I had done duathlons. I'd done bike races. I played basketball. Like I played college basketball. Like I I was an athlete. Why, 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 why did this happen to me? There was a lot of anger and it came out. I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Ultimately you talk to somebody. Yeah. Like we said, you can save lives by having people realize what's going on, that this is potentially can happen to even Mm -hmm. fit people. And typically, if you talk to like, we talked about Dave McGillivray, right? You have fit people who get heart disease, and it's typically a combination of diet and or hereditary, right? Correct. And you found out that that was pretty much spot on for you. Correct. It was heart disease. And come to find out, and I found out this at the beginning of the year, my mother's side of the family with my has a history of heart disease. I didn't know my father's side of the family. I was raised by a different father. I recently found out over about the beginning of the year that my biological father had suffered from heart disease. Hmm. So in talking with the cardiologist, when all of this happened, he figured it was probably 50-50 on that it was genetics and and or diet and slash lifestyle. The thing that I stress to people when it comes to heart, especially my age now at 48, was to get your EKGs to have your heart checked because a lot of people don't you get your blood work done they check your cholesterol and that's it yeah you know what my cholesterol though my artery was blocked wasn't high yeah it's funny to me that you had that event and you didn't get any warning or maybe you just ignored it i did a couple of days before the actual heart attack the relationship that i was in we were having a conversation we were sitting on the couch and i looked down and i looked at her and i said my ankles look swollen they look swollen to you and she's like yeah a little bit which is a, apparently a telltale warning sign. So swollen ankles is a warning sign. And I had had what the doctors think was a, a slight heart attack about a month earlier. Again, while I was out on the bike, I was struggling. I wasn't feeling well. I crashed and I just kind of wrote it off. I was like, you know, it was just a bad day on the bike. Yeah. And, and you would think as endurance athletes, we would have a better handle on our body. The problem that I have with me, and I said this in the article, is even with the amount of pain that I was in, 
I still contemplated finishing the ride. Oh yeah. Because it's just pain to me. If you're sitting on the saddle long enough, if you're up on a mountain long enough, you're going to hurt. You're going, there's going to be pain and you learn to compartmentalize it and move on from it. Now the difference is, is I think I'm probably a little bit too dramatic because when I do have a little bit of pain or whatever, it's kind of like, okay, well, where is it? What's it doing? Yeah. Uh, Where's the nitro? Where's the, when I traveled extensively for my job while I was working, when all that happened, the first thing I would do when I got on a plane was look to see where my seat was in relativity to the defibrillator that's on the plane. Yeah. It changed the way I viewed my life. It's funny though, because I know how cyclists are, right? I'm a runner, so we're not as tightly wrapped as cyclists, but well, the guy's coming to cut your Lycra and you're like, no, don't cut my bib. You're dying of a heart attack. (laughs) You don't want the guy to cut your bib off. Look, I paid 200 bucks for that. Yeah. The the story behind that particular kit is it's a, and they don't make it anymore. It's a Mellow Johnny's. So Lance Armstrong's bike shop in Austin, Texas. It's a kit from there that I got there when I was doing the ride for the roses with Lance. I got to ride with Lance, all of that. So there's a significant amount of memories associated with that kit. And when everything happened, I will never forget it. It's clear as day is watching this orderly come through the doors with scissors in his hand. <laughs> and my jersey's already completely unzipped. Yeah. And I'm looking at and he, I was like, right, what are you going to do? He's like, well, I need to cut your clothes off. I'm like, but I can take them off. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's not procedure. We, he's like, we have to cut them. And I was like, you sure? And he just reached down and he grabbed both straps at the same time and snip. And I was yep. like, oh, he cut everything else. And he went for my shoes and people don't know how expensive cycling shoes are. Please Google. <laughs> and I begged him. I think I say it all the time. I was begging him so much. I think it was actual tears because I couldn't fathom him cutting my shoes. And luckily for me and God bless him, he actually pulled them off. I mean, it's so much easier to pull them off than to cut them though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why would you even uh, try to cut them? Uh, I suppose you could cut the straps. Yeah. Right? And there were Velcro straps and he could have easily cut them. And luckily, yeah. thankfully, he was nice to me and pulled them off. And you got your bike back. So yeah. And the bike has since broke. I do have it. It's here. Specialized was great to me because I made it a point to make sure that they knew what happened because their bike I was on and it broke a year and a half ago, had about 20,000 miles on it. So, I mean, I put an extensive amount of miles on that bike and God bless Specialized because they replaced it um, and sent me a new one, which was nice. But that bike, and I told them, I said, because I bought it new, so it was warranted for life. And I told my guy here, I was like, if they want the frame, then I'm not going to give it to them. I'm yeah. like, uh, I'll buy a new frame. I'll buy a new bike. I was like, but I'm not giving them that frame. I can't. And he yeah. knew the story. And he's like, let me see what I can do. Specialized. Nope, we'll give him a new frame. Or we gave him a new frame. But that bike is actually mounted below the actual kit because the kit is framed. It has all my hospital tags. on, yeah. And then it actually has people laugh when I post a picture of it because it has a pack of cigarettes in the frame. <laughs> Um, those were the cigarettes you had with those you. Were the, yep, those were the cigarettes. when you got to the top of the climb, right? You were going to have a cigarette. It was not um, uncommon. <laughs> when I tell people, even for me and everything that I went through, it happened on a Sunday. I think I got home on Wednesday. I think I actually tried to smoke that Thursday. Yeah. And I couldn't. I couldn't physically inhale it. And that was the last time that I ever made an attempt to smoke. But even through everything that I've been through, nicotine had such a hold on me knowing yeah. full well what it did to me or helped do to me that I still tried yeah. to smoke again. Yeah. Yeah. But the one thing, and I say this to me, it's still the funniest part of this whole story is in the hospital, I had two cardiologists, 
one who ultimately became my initial cardiologist and then the other one who I couldn't stand. The one I didn't like, he kept coming in because at the time I was 39 and he would come in and he would just berate me about my diet and what I did and no yeah. more of this and no more of that. And he kept saying to me, if you continue living this lifestyle, you'll be dead before you're 40. That's what he kept telling me for yeah. three days. This is what this man is telling me. On the last day of leaving on that Wednesday, and he comes in, he's like, same thing, no more meat, no more cheese, no more of this, no more ice cream, blah, blah, blah. He says, if you keep like that, you're going to be dead before you're 40. So I turned and looked at him. I said, have you even read my file? And he goes, I know everything that's in your file. I said, well, then you're telling me I have two days to live because my birthday is on Friday, you ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. They, so they let you um, get back to working out pretty fast. Yes. It was the first question I asked Yeah, was, when can I get back on the bike? They told me two months, as long as I take my medication and do everything that I needed to do. And I was on my bike in two months, August 12th. What, was the first ride weird or uh, celebratory? It was uncomfortable. And it was uncomfortable because everything that I was as an athlete yeah. was gone. Yeah. And that was the biggest surprise to me was, I've said it time and time again, it felt like somebody hit a reset button. Yeah. yeah. So all my endurance, everything yeah. that was part of who I was at the time was gone. Yeah. Your engine um, got hit. Yeah. But it was a great feeling to be back out on the bike. Yeah. But it was, you know, like I said, it was the very first question out of my mouth. Yeah. My so family, how, like, are you kidding me? So how has this impacted you over the last uh, eight years or so, six <clears> years ago? The biggest thing that I've taken away from it, especially over recent years, is to, and this sounds very cliche, is to live every day as if it's the last. If you want to do something, do it. And I wrestled a lot with a lot of trips and a lot of things that I wanted to do over the last 20 years. And it was always the old adage, well, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll do it. Yeah. And now's not a good time, right? Yeah. And like I said, going through this emotional rebuilding or, or whatever you want to call it, acceptance. One of the things I've always wanted to do with my life is was go to Nepal. I wanted to go to Nepal. I wanted to see Everest. I wanted to, this was a thing that was a discussion back in the early 90s. So as I'm fixing what I needed to be fixed, as what I feel I needed to be fixed, I was home one night, I was on the computer and screw it. And I bought a plane ticket to Nepal Yep. and booked a, a trek and, and everything. And even though I was with one of my friends who ultimately signed on later on, you spend an inornate amount of time by yourself on your climbing for 11 days, 12 days, or however long we were on the mountain. And you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about what you can do and, and how far you can push yourself. And I live at 5,000 feet and, and being able to not really have to deal with altitude a, a whole lot. It wasn't horrible for me, but seeing beauty and, and feeling ungodly small yeah. in, the, in the Himalayas really gave me a sense of what I can't let these moments and these opportunities pass me by anymore. I just, I can't. And coming back and sitting and I'll say this to anybody, if you do have a heart condition or an issue, and you want to do those things, please, please, please talk to your cardiologist first and make sure that you're able to do these things. Because when and I love my cardiologist here, he's, hey, this is what I want to do. And he just kind of looks at me and says, okay, it's my job to make sure that you can do it. So I fought to get off medications that I feel I didn't need anymore. The biggest thing that I've taken away from it is no one can afford to not cherish the time that they have and do the things that you want to do. Because for somebody like me, I could, like a lot of other people, not be here. And I would have, granted, you can't regret it because you're no longer here. But now if something was to happen, I'm good with it. I'm comfortable with it. But just truly live your life. Enjoy what's here because you only yeah. get it 
fortunately for me, I have a second chance, but most people don't get that. Yeah. And that's uh, gratitude, right? So there's a couple of things you touched on there that are kind of universal in these sort of conversations. And one is the living in the now, Correct. right? And taking a chance because you do appear like me and you, we've been out and we've done things, right? But yeah. you, you think back, it was just another thing on the list that you checked off, right? Yeah. So I rode with Lance Armstrong, check, right? And then Correct. you move on to the next thing. And you got to stop and go, okay, I'm here, appreciate it, right? And as you get older, you get better. At and then the gratitude, right? Gratitude solves a lot of issues. It's hard to be pissed off at anybody if you have a lot of gratitude. Yeah. And I think that was something that I had to learn. Um, like I said, there was a lot of anger and I really needed to be thankful for what I was given, for what my family and my friends were given as a second time around. And that's probably the biggest thing I will take away from all of this. All right. So that's good. We've reached the end. We're going to move towards the exit. No problem. Any other lessons learned you want to share or anything else? Any links or things people you want them to look at? I mean, they're more than well. Obviously, I have a, an Instagram account, which is JC Pepin, P-E-P-I-N. All my travels are there. A lot of my food is there. Things that I do for work, places I've been. There's a lot of upcoming trips from climbing Rainier. Hopefully going back to Nepal next year to, to do the Annapurna circuit. Um, Annapurna is a, I have a special place in my heart for that mountain. I'm not really sure why. And then 2022, a goal of mine is to travel to China and test for my black belt in the Shaolin Temple. That's hopefully coming as long as we can travel safely to China in 2022. So did you just, I forgot to ask you, did you switch sort of a plant-based diet at the end of this? No. One of the conversations I had with my cardiologist was, we need to bear in mind that I am a chef. Yeah. I do like to cook and I do like to eat. And he started laughing and he said, well, normally I would focus on preventative measure, but that ship has sailed. Those were his words. He said, so he made a job. And again, this is where I think having a good cardiologist, he made adjustments to my medication. I go through stress tests every couple of years. And it's monitored and I exercise probably more than most people. You're yeah. a runner. So, you know, you're like yeah. me, I, I, you know, my bike's set up right there to get on the trainer as soon as we're done. Yeah. Um, I got to work out too. <laughs> you know, I still love to eat. Unfortunately, if that cuts my life a little bit short, I'd rather enjoy the food and the, I'm just going to enjoy the food. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. But there's a lot of tweaks you can do to make it, you can cut out the really awful stuff, right? Yeah. There's some small things you can do to get better. All right. So I'll let you go. I appreciate you helping me out this week, Jason. Oh, you're welcome. I didn't realize you were from Boston, but I'm a New Englander and I went to college in Boston. So oh, yeah, which one? I went to Newberry College before it closed. It just closed oh. two years ago. Oh, no kidding. Uh, in Brooklyn. So oh, no kidding. All right. <laughs> yep. I'm outside of Boston. Nice. I love Boston. Great city. It's a nice little city. <laughs> it's home. Boston's home. All right. Cheers. Um, it was wonderful. Thank you for today. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, we'll sync up via email. All right. Okay. Perfect. Thank you very much. You have a wonderful day. All right. And I'll talk Thank to you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. City of the Dead, part three. Bill the dog yawned and stretched as the gloom of the distribution center became deeper towards dusk. Bill the dog belly crawled out from under the bench where he had lain and scratched an itch behind his ear with a long back leg. He was a biggish dog, some sort of wolfhound mix. He had a large head, short curly hair, a tail with a bit of an insouciant kink upwards that gave an impression of dandiness when he trotted. He was a good athlete, not bouncy or frenetic like a sheepdog, 
but strong, reserved, and powerful when he needed to be. Bill's greatest asset was his discipline. He knew what to do, and when he had a job, he did it with the single-minded focus of a dedicated soldier. It was a soldier who taught him, who groomed him, who raised him to be this committed and sanguine soldier of an animal. The pandemic had removed that good but damaged soul from the influences in his life, but the echoes of that committed training rang on within. And when he ran across the old man that morning in the midst of a swamp cooking rabbit on a low fire, he knew he had found a kindred soul, the missing piece. They were both disciplined and damaged. They fit together. Now Bill was a mercenary in the old man's tribe. Bill nosed open a backpack and pulled out a mouthful of protein bars. He delicately peeled off the wrappers with a fastidious precision that was almost comical for a big dog. They weren't the best meal he'd ever had, but he knew he needed to stay fed and watered to be able to do his job well. He'd been told to stay, but he needed water. He moved silently to the door and waited for a long minute, listening with his foppish ears, letting the air with its smells filter through his nose. No humans, no activity. Bill nosed open the jimmy door and let his eyes adjust, taking another long moment to let the pictures form and the situation reveal itself like a great sensory Pollock painting. He smelled the pool of rainwater by the drain, the dirty, wet smell of runoff. He moved to the puddle and drank his fill. What to do now, soldier? Best to get undercover and wait. If no one showed up for a few sundowns, he'd have to venture out to find some other place to fill a role. The leader sat on a weight bench. Apparently this was the headquarters of whoever these people were, a Golding's Gym franchise in a strip mall. The old man leaned on Brad's arm and squinted at the man. What would this turn out to be? A gang? A tribe? Some sort of religious cult? Plagues always brought out the religious nut jobs. Throughout history, when humans couldn't explain something or cope with something, they blamed an angry god. Would he and Brad become some sort of tribute or sacrifice? No way to know. Nothing to do but play the part and stay in the moment and look for the advantage and wait for the opportunity. The first thing he noticed was the place was clean. Too clean for some random street gang. There was no dust on the equipment. Freshly laundered towels were neatly stacked on the shelves. The trash cans were empty. This level of clean demonstrated organization, discipline, focus. What kind of organization cared about dust when 90% of the world's population had just blinked out in horrific deaths filled with blood and mucus? I apologize, gentlemen, the man on the bench said to them. You caught me in my workout. He considered the metal dumbbell in his hand, placed it on the bench, and stood up, smiling. We all have to stay at our best, especially now, right? What is this place? Brad said, looking around the room. Who are you people? Sir, he added, with a last-minute realization that politeness and respect was probably a good idea. 
The old man let Brad ask the question. He would be able to gauge the man and his response. Well, young man, we are the government, the man paused, officiously watching how they took that news. The government of what? Brad asked, innocently enough. Well, we'll get to that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start with introductions, why don't we? The man replied. I am John Tasker, the director of the Port Authority. This industrial sector is under my jurisdiction. Now who are you, and why are you looting one of my distribution centers? Now the old man spoke up. Sir, we are just refugees, like everyone else. We weren't looting. Bradley, my nephew here, he worked at the facility and had permission. He turned his head to Brad. Brad, show him your keycard ID. Brad fished the ID from his wallet. The old man couldn't understand why Brad still carried his wallet. Habits die hard. The director examined the ID and spoke thoughtfully. Bradley Martell? Are you any relation to the Bradley Martell who was chief controller for Automax here? That was my father, Brad confirmed. He died at the beginning. And here Brad darkened, but continued, looking at the floor, and my mom. I'm sorry to hear that, son. Brad was a good businessman, and a good man. We could use him now. We've all lost someone. Well, boys, my judgment is that you probably didn't mean any harm, and I'm going to let you off with a warning. We're free to go, the old man asked, sounding way more surprised than he should have. John Tasker raised an amused eyebrow. Yes, you're free to go, he paused. Once you complete a short quarantine period. How short? Well, we start with six months. The old man suppressed an urge to say something stupid, reset himself, and started again. Mr. Tasker, we truly appreciate your hospitality, but what if we want to leave before six months? Well, the ordinance is six months. As director, I feel duty-bound to uphold the laws. As you can see, my hands are tied. Anything less than six months would be breaking the law, and we can't have that. It's a slippery slope. Once you start breaking laws, it all goes to hell. The other challenge we have here is that I've got no way to hold people. So our justice system, under current conditions, well, it's a form of martial law, and it's very black and white. I mean... I hate having to cull the population any more than nature already has, but we can't have lawbreakers. He looked at them, and some unreadable emotion passed across his face. Maybe it's all for the better. Maybe it's like a fresh start. He waved a hand. You boys get settled, and Paul here will find you a job. The old man had no response. I hope you two have the smarts to take advantage of this opportunity. Please don't make trouble. It's just not in anyone's best interest. John Tasker turned and picked up the dumbbell off the bench. He hefted it and blew out a lungful of air. Brad and the old man were ushered out of the room. The old man was thinking. No immediate reason to do anything rash. This was a time to watch and learn. The man John Tasker seemed to have a situation under control here, but something was off. There was a small whiff of something bad in this. But wasn't there a mix of bad in everything now? 
He'd wait and see. He'd wait and see. OK, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. OK, my friends, we have ridden our old bikes to the bagel shop at the end of episode 4-440 of the Run Run Live podcast. I'll take a sunflower seed toasted with crunchy peanut butter and strawberry jam, please. So you already know my training plans for the foreseeable future. Easy on the running with a recreational bike ride and some core workouts. That's pretty boring. Gotta find myself some inspiration somewhere. Other good news is that I'm almost done painting the house. I've got a couple places I can't reach. And my 32-foot ladder that I used to reach those places last time I painted the house, it's out of action. The rung locks are non-functional. I tried to order new rung locks, but the ladder is too old to get replacement parts for. And the only way I could even potentially use it would be to extend it all the way, manually lock the rungs in place, and then try to get it up. Which, believe me, I tried, but the physics of it is just impossible. But, it is not all bleak. My other running buddy, Brian, is a contractor, and he's going to drive over with his truck with uh, one of his long ladders this week, and I'll use that to finish up. So that's it. We're knocking things off the list. Next up on the never-ending home improvement list is garage doors. Getting new garage doors, which I was delighted to discover are only like $3,000. So that's good. And then I have to winterize my motorcycle, which I did not ride at all this summer due to the apocalypse. But I will take it back over and stick it back in Frank's barn for the winter. That's on my list as well. I got to find a outfit to refurbish that old motorcycle. That would be on my wish list. If I could have something done, I would do that. It would cost me more than the bike is worth, but it would make me very happy in my old age. So Ollie the Collie is almost a year and a half old, but a year and a half old. And, you know, he's still mostly feral, but hey, aren't we all? (laughs) He's great with people on the trails, which is just wonderful. That's one less thing I have to stress about. I just say, leave it, and he ignores him, runs right by. And when he does greet another dog, he runs up to the dog, rolls over on his back, and gets all submissive. So that's good, too. So there's no challenge running off leash until somebody gets a hair across there. Well, we won't talk about that. Uh, But he is a nightmare on the leash. (laughs) I took him out on the road one night this week. Uh, I have to really pay attention. He'll get spooked by something and like take off at an angle. And I have to find a better way, a better harness for him. The collar isn't good enough because he's built like a brick house, like a brick house. Not as rangy as Buddy was, more of a linebacker or a fullback. Uh, Amazingly strong and athletic, though. Smart as heck, but willful, and I'm thinking part jackal, um, maybe. (laughs) Big head, lots of teeth. Uh, Among the books I'm reading right now is one by Brene Brown called Daring Greatly. It's one of her recent ones. And... The premise is that you have to get outside your comfort zone to find the good stuff, right? You have to be vulnerable. But in order to be vulnerable, you need to have a a strong sense of self, a sense of self-worth. And that's what gives you the strength. You have to be convinced of your own self-worth, your unique gifts, your power. 
in itself, incomparable to anyone else, incomparable to previous versions of yourself, your centered power of what you bring, unafraid, right now. And that self-power allows you to dance badly in public and sing karaoke, among other things. When you have that keen sense of self in the now, you can do hard things, you can be vulnerable, and that allows you to listen with empathy, to learn new things, and, heaven forbid, change your mind. So my friends, what would you do if you weren't afraid of failure? You weren't afraid of what other people think. Think about it. Every day is another chance to find out. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And I almost forgot to take you out is track number 18 from Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the Nays called When the Sun Burns Out. And I know you'll be sad to hear that there are only two tracks left in the rock opera. But Frank told me this morning that they're working on some new songs. So there is hope. There's hope for the future. Sun